0: News. 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 news, 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 New York City, the FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute, <laughs> FAQ, <A-Q. laughs> it's FAQ NYC, I'm Harry Siegel, in Brooklyn, here with Professor Christina Greer, elsewhere in Brooklyn, hello, hello there, so Governor Cuomo is in a very tight corner, very much of his own making, it appears, as we record this, it's Friday morning, a Majority of New York's congressional Democratic delegation has just come out in various statements, a wave of them today, and said that he should no longer be governor, should step aside and let Kathy Hochul run the uh, state while he deals with these mounting allegations against him. The state Senate Democrats from Long Island put out a collective statement. These are Cuomo's natural allies in the party, not radicals or enemies, saying it's time for him to go. And it's hard to see how he uh, continues on from here, although he's made it clear that he has no intention of going anywhere. In his one televised press conference, since all of these now six allegations of sexual uh, harassment, and in one case it appears assault, have come out, uh, Cuomo said definitively that he's sorry if anything he did was misinterpreted, but he never touched anyone inappropriately. This sixth accuser, we now know of, apparently is somebody on his staff who was summoned to his personal residence uh, to help with an issue on his cell phone and says that he then uh, put a hand down address. She reported this within channels, not going to the press, not looking to sue or anything at this point that anyone could see, during Cuomo's televised presser denying he'd ever touched anyone inappropriately. So that seems gut-wrenching, which I believe was the phrase Governor Cuomo used as he categorically denied it happened. And it's getting very hard to see how he is able to continue. He has very few allies left. The state assembly, Carl Hastie has has started an investigation that that, that maybe is a real probe and maybe was the least uh, that he could do at this point rather than straight up calling for impeachment proceedings to begin and or the governor to step down. But he seems to be after a decade very much on top and in control of Albany. And that started after he helped to bring down the previous governor, Elliot Spitzer, as attorney general. These could be the last hours in power for Andrew Cuomo. I don't know if he's governor by the time you hear this podcast. But this week, we're going to go somewhere a little different. We're going to go Down memory lane, spend 90 minutes or so with 90-year-old Charlie Wrangle, going over 70 years of his life and career. It's such a pleasure to have him here. Let's jump right in. Literally the best voice in New York politics.
1: Hello, Congressman. How are you? How are you
0: doing?
1: Good. I haven't seen you in so long.
2: It has been.
1: Okay, so let's get started, Congressman Wrangle, Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is so great for Harry and myself. We have so many questions for you. We wanted to start off with, you know, you were known as the the Lion of Congress, and for uh, for many of <laughs> for many of our listeners, they may not have been either in New York or around when you decided to fly down to the DR. And tell then Congressman Adam Clayton Powell that you were going to challenge him for his seat. Can you take us back to that time? Tell us when it was and what you were doing and what inspired you to say, you know what? I actually think I should lead Harlem at this moment in American history.
3: (laughs) It really wasn't that much thought given to what was a political situation that I was in that had very, very little to do directly with Adam Clayton Powell. And it wasn't DR or the Dominic Republic. For some
2: reason, after Adam Powell had lost a civil case, there were all
3: types of financial and political barriers that prevented him from coming to his district, And to the United States without facing more severe penalties.
2: I, among other people, thought that even though Adam
3: was violating every principle you could think of, being a member of Congress was more important and that the governor should provide an opportunity for him to serve his constituents, which was much far more serious than what he was charged and convicted of, which involved with a slandering a lady who obviously was engaged in some illegal activities.
2: Having said that, and having been in the Assembly for just one term, and
3: knowing who the hell I was except the assemblyman that succeeded, Percy Sutton, who was very well known, I would constantly, when the governor would call the legislature together, whether or not he thought he had a responsibility to round out our congressional New York State delegation by being more of a defendant for Adam Clayton Powell as it relates to him returning to Congress. So he got frustrated saying that I didn't understand how he too wanted Adam back and he too needed a full delegation in Washington. And he, I, he said that if you think you can help, I authorize you to go to Bimini and convince your friend, the congressman, to come back and I will remove and relax uh, those penalties that will prevent him. Well, the place
2: just sighed. I didn't know what the governor was talking about. But The political situation I was in was that
3: I have been a supporter of Adam Clayton Powell before I knew who the hell he was because of what he represented. I went to Washington to get them from unconstitutionally kicking him out. I've stood him when there were things that he was saying could be said in a different way, but he was all that we had.
2: And so for me to go to Bimini and convince him to come back,
3: it it would only be because Adam Powell was so well-loved that when the people got tired of Adam Clayton Powell, there was an election and he almost lost that election, which meant what?
2: It meant that in the next election, he had been away even further, and that voters
3: being as fickle as they sometimes are, can say the heck with all of it, and they had voted for nobody that Adam had beaten, but this time I was afraid of, If the voters said, the heck with the whole system, Adam, Powell, Charlie, Wrangle, and all of those that are in office, me being new in office, it could jeopardize my chances. Because there was an assumption
2: that Adam Powell and I were close because he was the congressman,
3: I was the assemblyman. And you see our names in the newspapers, but we never had a drink or dinner or even a conversation together. And so when I decided that I had to explain to him how serious it was, not only for him, but for me, too, and that I can't afford to be on the wrong side of this election because... Not only was I brand new in the assembly, but I had just assumed the practice of a well-known black attorney who made the judgeship. And so I had rent responsibilities, all kinds of things that I had planned for me. And it sure didn't include going south to Washington, D.C. for any purpose at all. So the wife and I took off and made plans to go to Paradise Island and get some boat that took us to Bimini. And there was sufficient evidence surrounding this that
2: Adam not only knew we were coming, but he had his uh, preferred other to
3: greet us, and she was very nice. The accommodations... I couldn't imagine a, a, a shack that they called it uh, a motel. It was without air condition. It smelled the fish. It was a terrible thing. As a matter of fact, a person wrote a book called King of the Cats. He used to be a reporter for
2: the Washington Post and he described the living conditions on that island. And all day long, we had to wait to
3: see when and if the Congressman would see us hmm. and that was from ten o'clock in the morning to about six in the evening when it was announced I'd been through the same through with same thing through with President Castro, but I didn't think <laughs> he would do that, and then when I was told that the congressman would see me. They took me to what amounted to a country bar
2: that had picnic-type of tables and benches. And this is where the fishermen would
3: come and bring their fish to be cooked. or This is where the people who lived in Bimini that catered to Fishermen would come and drink. And on a long table with about 30 people with white, clean sheets over them, about 30 people, including Adam Powell with his white shorts and Polish shade on, introducing me as this is the young man that Governor Rockefeller has sent down to talk to me. And I want you gentlemen to treat him well and eat and drink what you want because Governor Rockefeller is a very rich man and Assemblyman Charles Wrangle and his wife who were picking up the tab. Oh. <laughs> well, it went down from there because, uh, Adam eloquently told a series of jokes how much work he's done for Harlem and the country and the world.
2: And at some point I asked him, when was he and I going to talk? And he stood up and flickered the ashes off. He says, we can talk right now. And so I explained to him the best that I
3: could that there was a head of steam building up against his reelection, and we felt it in the polls going down the entire ticket. And while there were six candidates that announced that they were running against him
2: that were, were a little consequence in the last election, John Young, who was a friend of Adam
3: and was a no consequence. Got a substantial vote. He patted me on the cheek after he heard my eloquent argument and told me to do what the hell I had to do, and that uh, he was less—he was not concerned about his reelection, and much less concerned about mine. <laughs> I I really couldn't believe, except for a quarter vodka that he got rid of, that he was serious about it. And as my wife and I went back to Paradise Island and got back to New York, I then had to figure out what the hell was I going to say. I could never explain
2: that trip to anybody. And so my wife says, I know what you're going
3: to say. And I said, what's that? She says, we're running.
2: Mm. We're running. And really, it was better that I ran and lost than stay in that position
3: under any of the other candidates and, and I wish you'd take the time to look and see who the other candidates were. That it would have meant a shattering of all of the dreams. And I
2: just loved Harlem. And uh, what happened with me was, uh, I had one of my new lives. I spent all of my life on Lennox Avenue on 32nd Street.
3: As a high school dropout, I went to the service and was the Chinese surrounded at the consequence of a year in combat. I came home with more
2: medals, more awards, parades, and ego. And the only thing that I forgot was I was still a high
3: school dropout. And when I had to face
2: the economic conditions that were just as bad as they were four years ago, back in the garment center with a hand truck, it was raining one afternoon. The hand truck slipped out of my hand. And boxes went all over 36th
3: Street and 6th Avenue. And a big white cop in a big black
2: raincoat cussed me out to tell me to get those boxes off of the street. I was
3: holding up traffic. I walked from 36th Street
2: and 6th to 23rd and 7th to the Veterans Administration. I didn't know what I was going there for, but I knew that I deserved better than that. And I might
3: be making clear that having been among the first that went to Korea and the first that came back, that they gave me more than my share
2: of being proud of me getting shot up, but I knew I deserved better than what I was getting. And instead, I got worse. The Veterans Administration were compiled of, guess who? Veterans of World War
3: II. Mm. And and all of them looked like they had been wounded or something, but the one thing they weren't prepared for, and that was another war in Korea. And no matter how many medals I had, they were actually laughing. Hey, Joe, we got a guy here, got a Purple Heart. Where'd he get it from the Boy Scouts? No, he got it from Korea. Where the hell is Korea? Well, what are we going to do with it? We don't know. He never been to school. And then on top of that, the Lenox Avenue came out of me that, what the hell can I lose? I raised more than that B.A. And an old guy named John becker grabbed me and asked me, why are you raising hell and what the hell do you expect that we could do? And I showed them all these damn aptitude tests and they're saying I should be a undertaker or wire cutter. I said, the whole system wrong. And they said, look, Rangel, the reason why your aptitude It's different from what we can assign you is that you only have four years of of service attributed to you. And you haven't been out of high school. That's two years for high school and two years for something that'll get you the job. So what is it you want to be? Well, now I'm teed off. I don't know anybody that's going to college. I'm living with my grandfather. I wanted him to love me so much, and he did, but he came from Accomack, Virginia, where men folk didn't tell others that they loved him. But I knew one thing. He had been an elevator operator in the criminal courts building for over 30 years, and I even had
2: to go to the political club to get an extension. And... I knew he just loved district attorneys,
3: defense lawyers, and judges. So I told him, I want to be a lawyer. Well, everybody started laughing. (laughs) But they managed to put together a package that squeezed in four years. At least I could get an undergraduate degree. And they worked out something where my courses could possibly lead me to
2: a law scholarship which i got mm-hmm. and so my wife was the only person that i really had as a friend that had completed college and and she really took a lot of the rough spots that I had from
3: Lenox Avenue off of me just with her presence,
2: because I had never dated a college girl. Uh, I never dated, period. I So girls would fit into my studies. And so love
3: and all of that stuff was nice, but I knew I had to survive.
2: And so during this time, the civil rights thing broke out. And I had never met a white
3: Southerner in New York, New York in my life. I may not have met one even now. And when I would go to the farm that they had down in Accomack, Virginia, it was you get off the train, you get on the wagon, the horse takes you to the farm.
2: And you may see white folks, but you never talk to them. But while I'm concluding the law school, I get involved in the freedom movement and going south and actually seeing the depth that white folks
3: had against black. But more than that, I could see really what my grandfather had gone through how the stories he would tell me would make more sense. How he saw lynchings, where to me they they were just stories that people
2: told. And and Paul, I met Percy Sutton and Paul O'Dwyer, and so many other people that
3: allowed me to think beyond 32nd Street and
2: Lenox Avenue. And so when I finally got out of law school, I, in small circles, people knew who
3: Charlie Rangel was. And the black bar, where well, I didn't know the black lawyers, gave me a reception when I was appointed as an assistant U.S. attorney, US attorney by Robert Kennedy. I was appointed as a Kennedy as a
2: lawyer to President Johnson uh, for the draft. And uh I was in
3: such an ideal position in not to have anything on my mind as that we can do better than what we're doing. I had no ambition to go to Washington. I had just started my law practice. And so when I came home and Percy Sutton and
2: J. Raymond Jones, I can't say enough about him because he was such a political
3: big shot that I was surprised that he would have known my name. But many people were monitoring that kid from Lenox Avenue that just got out of law school. We read about him in the South and he's getting involved in local politics. I remember the Black Bar president asked me what I wanted because he was afraid that I was going to challenge the assemblyman, which I later did. But my whole point was that I had no ambition for public office, but I had every ambition to do better. And I was married to someone who didn't know any better than to allow me to do what I thought I could make a contribution. And that doesn't mean that I had a lot of office for higher paying jobs. It just meant that I had an opportunity to work with Percy Sutton, Basil Patterson, David Dinkins, and countless of other people that devoted their lives to make life better. To the extent that if God makes a mistake and
2: has Gable hanging around calling me in, The one thing I can say is that since I got out of the army and since I went back to school, that in any job I've had, I've never, never, never had a bad day. And you can't beat that.
0: No, you can't. I have so many things I want to ask you about. I'd like to very briefly ask you how it was when you were a U.S. attorney, going way back, uh, working working with uh, uh, Robert Morgenthau. And then I, I, I know we'd love to hear about the uh, the gang of four a bit. We had a lovely conversation on this podcast a couple years ago with uh, with Mayor Dinkins and. Uh, I, I, like to turn there as we maybe slowly go forward in time. And thank you again for taking the time and taking us through these stories. This is really great. Well, let me promise you that
3: my answers will not be nearly as long as to where I got with with my wife and how we were able to retire with no regrets <laughs> and that we thought we did the best stuff. That we could. Uh, Before the Gang of Four, what was the question?
0: I was just curious uh, what your experience was like being a U.S. attorney and working with Robert Morgenthau back when.
3: I wasn't supposed to be an assistant
2: U.S. attorney. Uh, A guy named Carter, who became
3: one of the first black federal judges in the Southern District was scheduled to become a federal judge, but they felt, as many did with Constant Motley, that you just didn't leave the NAACP, you became a federal judge. You had to do something, and that something was he was appointed or was about to be appointed as an assistant U.S. attorney under Robert Morgenthau, appointed by Attorney General Robert Kennedy. The politics of how many black judges and when they had to be done was something that Ray Jones, the Kennedys, and to some extent the Johnson-Powell politics had to do with how many black judges are you got to get. And it reached a point, and I didn't even know Bob Carter or, or, or Robert Carter until afterward. But they scruffed him from having to do any work in the US attorney's office to put him on the bench and picked me out to call me in and saying I was replacing him. The reason I gave you that story was that all the whites down there knew that a black was coming and they knew his name was Carter. So for weeks and months, they called me Carter and all the law books that I would get, I was embossed with the gold name of the assistant. It was Carter. But uh, it was exciting. Uh, Bob Morgenthau and I uh, got along so well and uh, the cases I handle was so exciting, uh, but when he decided that he was going to run for governor, then I took a leave of absence uh, to support him, and that allowed me to take a deep breath about how exciting uh, politics was, and and uh, that, besides oh, a lot of trials we had, except one exciting thing was that I had one narcotic case where the defendant had an enlarged lip, and uh, it was not put on the, it uh, the, uh, wasn't DEA then, it was a good narcotic, a dangerous drug. They didn't describe the lip like that. And a part of the defense on appeal was that
2: it was the wrong eye. Judge Thurgood Marshall had his very first case in the Southern District. And that was my very first case in the, in the Federal Court of Appeals. And I don't know, I thought there should have been some shit chat or
3: something. <laughs> but he ate me up alive. Uh, He confirmed the conviction, but
2: he said, so, young man, all you got to say is that the government just noticed that the lips were not
3: properly described? I said, yes, sir. He says, well, I want you to remember that this judge just notices that, too. And it became a joke, but I was scared
2: as hell when I went there. The Gang of Four, of course, most people know by now. Percy Sutton was a very bright, ambitious, he had run against the Harlem leader, 11 times every year. And uh, when I was told that J. Raymond Jones wanted to see me for the purposes of having a candidate to run against the incumbent, they made it clear to me that Percy was not going to be running And that they needed to fill the gap. And since I had been a loyal foot soldier and
3: captain before the U.S. Attorney's Office, I'll be the guy. That loss that I had in that election allowed people to believe that me and Jay Raymond Jones
2: were political allies. I knew who the hell he was. But he,
3: when I went to visit with him, he said, so you're the young guy from Lennox Avenue, raising all that hell. <laughs> and uh, in order to perpetuate this friendship, after I lost and I had two or three political organizations I had started, I would go up to Ray Jones's office for all the political big shots was to complain and he would let me get into the air conditioned office where only the big shots was. So
2: the only thing I had was the belief that this kid from the valley was close to the county leader. And then when I told
3: Ray Jones that I, I, I wasn't going to be able to stay there That Percy Sutton and I, which is a story, a long story, had joined forces. He said, young man, as long as you were Percy Sutton, I'll never be able to help
2: you. I said, well, you can say what you want, but you're going to at least talk with him before I leave you. Well, they fell in love with each other.
3: Ray Jones gave us David Dinkins, who was a part of Ray Jones' organization. Percy brought Basil Patterson, who was a part of the NAACP. And we went to a meeting together for the purpose to see what some people were doing. In Brooklyn, I think it was, that was before. Brooklyn was that that important. And we went there to visit and to listen and found out that one of the candidates thought it was an endorsement meeting and that one of the group that had called the meeting was supposed to get support for running for borough. They had a deal there. And all we did was look at each other and sarcastically say to each other, do you believe this is going on? And so what happened was when votes were taken and we abstained, other people withdrew their votes because they had assumed because we were there, we were part of it. And when the meeting was over, the person who thought he was going to come out with an endorsement for mayor, they said, and so what happened? And he said, I was stabbed in the back by the Gang of Four. (laughs) (laughs) And that was supposed to have been such a terrible thing to be part of the Gang of Four. It had to do with communist China and everything. But when we got back home, we were hailed as the Gang of Four. And we carried that with great pride ever since. But uh, the most wonderful thing is that We did not have any ambition that caused us to get into each other's path. And as Percy would say, our friendship was so deep and sincere that it required very little maintenance. Uh, We did not have to go
2: out socially or anything. And most people... Who thought we
3: were agreeing to something rather than to have a battle with the borough president, the congressman, the assemblyman, and the county leader? We were able to get a lot of things done uh, that we wouldn't have done if we didn't have that unity. And today, no matter what we're talking about in terms of groups of people. Uh, trying to improve the quality of life for their families and the community. Uh, it just can't be done unless there's a sense of unity. Uh, this has been sharply known uh, during slavery, uh, where uh, the races actually designed a method of keeping the slaves apart, And the same theory uh, exists today because we did more because people brought us projects that were worth supporting than us being creative enough to have created everything that we got credit for.
1: So Congressman, I have a question because obviously the Gang of Four friendship and you know, is is well documented. But when you were in Congress, I wanted to ask you about two other relationships. I'm currently working on a book about Barbara Jordan. And I know that she arrived in Congress two years after you. And also Shirley Chisholm from Brooklyn. And as you said, Brooklyn wasn't as as popular and and famous as it is right now. Um, But Shirley Chisholm arrived to Congress two years before you. So can you talk to us a little bit more about your relationship with Shirley Chisholm from Brooklyn and Barbara Jordan from Texas? Yes. And, And maybe even the formation of the Congressional Black Caucus as well.
3: When I got to the Congress, there were nine members of Congress there. And Adam Clayton Powell was not active among the eight for a lot of reasons. But He was not politically or physically active. So Charlie Diggs, who would then, would have been the senior member, had a select group that from time to time that they would meet. But you don't know what it's like not to know anybody who may look like you, but come from so many different parts of the country. They have different cultures, different understandings.
2: And it's very difficult that you would be able to have the same way of attaining a lot of goals.
3: I remember Jim Clive told me, he says, one thing about you fellows from New York is that you don't know how to deal with white folks. I thought that was a pretty nasty thing to say since my job was getting along. I ignored it until recently I've been telling him I didn't understand how right he was because if it wasn't for him, we would have had no Biden. And charm does not work when you're fighting racism. And you can smile all you want, but you have to have the political cards to win. And so what I'm saying
2: is that it was very, very difficult for eight people out of four and 35 to do
3: much of anything that anyone would take notice of. But I knew that Sutton and others in Albany had started a Black Caucus, I knew the problems that we had. I knew that, like in Washington, the word black was not fully accepted by some Negroes. And the fact that they found it difficult to believe what we could do by ourselves when we were part of a much larger organization so that when I... when We were talking about forming a Congressional Black Caucus. I think that Bill Clay in his book gives me a lot of credit for really sharing with them what I had just been through
2: in Albany, where people can love each other. But a black from Georgia
3: is not the same as a black from New Jersey. Or Philadelphia, and my wife, she's from some Hitchcock, Florida, Panama City, which I thought was in the canals, Florida. <laughs> the difference is that that we have just in talking. It's amazing if you have to have something so binding that you are got to be stuck with, like making law and establishing a policy. And so I think that my biggest success in the birth of the Congressional Black Caucus is making certain we all met on a Wednesday at 12 o'clock with no agenda, but letting everybody know we were in there and we scared the hell out of them because they had no idea what we were up to. And then who helped us tremendously would Nixon, President Nixon refused to meet with us. We then said that we would uh, not attend the State of the Union and that black groups who did not believe that we were not going to use it politically started joining us. And that number went from 13 to over 50 today. And if you count the Almost 50 Hispanics. You don't have to
2: be a political scientist to know that we're on the brink of the second reconstruction of America where people of color
3: can just be American and demand everything that they were writing about in that constitution where they we're deliberately excluding us. We can build a better and stronger America, but not allowing color to be uh, 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 something that would not allow you to move ahead as fast so that uh, the Congressional Black Caucus indirectly with Jim Clyburn, when you hear... Joe Biden says, the blacks had my back and I'll have theirs. And you hear from the vice president, something's happening now. And the fact that it's not based on color, but inequities that you're able to see that it's a weaker America because of this racism, that our kids are not able to compete with the scientists in China that the infrastructure, we don't have enough people to do the technical work so that monies will have to be invested in schools and hospitals and communities. This is the beginning of what Reconstruction should have taken care of. I'm very optimistic.
1: So when you were in, in Congress, can you tell us a little bit more about your relationship with Shirley Chisholm and Barbara Jordan?
3: Barbara Jordan is a class by herself. We served on the Judiciary Committee, the Impeachment Committee. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, they have something that they used to have, I don't know, called the Voice of God when you heard a thundering voice off stage in some of these affairs. And they had this booming voice you never saw who was speaking, but they say V-O-G and that. That was supposed to be a master ceremony hidden someplace. Her voice and matter of speaking and uh, her eloquence not only dominated the committee, but because we were on camera so often, put a spell on
2: the country. And when we were in the house, the tradition has it that
3: Democrats sit on one side, Republicans sit on the other. And they have their regional places where people from the same area would be together. With Shirley, with with uh, Barbara Jordan, wherever Barbara Jordan said, that was where the people wanted to sit next to. Uh, she was a beautiful person a smart person, and a person that I could not really see had any political ambition except to make certain that she understood that Constitution and understood it well.
2: Hmm.
1: And then did you interact with Shirley much, both being from New York, but at the time it seemed like Harlem was its own world and Brooklyn was its own world?
3: I never even thought much about Brooklyn. I'll probably spend the rest of my political life apologizing. I mean, I'm supporting uh Eric Adams for, for mayor, so yeah, that should <laughs> make
2: up for some of the things that I've done. But uh Shirley Chisholm came out of Brooklyn
3: and had to fight to get that nomination. And She got to the Congress before I did, and before I really got to know all of the members as well as I did, the word was out that Shirley was running for president. Well, the problem we had was that Shirley was working with Percy Sutton and not me and talking about her presidential ambitions. But worse than that, she was not working with individuals in the Congressional Black Caucus. And I don't know whether it was deliberate or, but the way it turned out, Shirley gave the impression that she was not enjoying the support of her brothers and sisters in the Congressional Black Caucus. And, uh, you may read Bill Clay's book or anybody's book about this area. The biggest problem that we had was that Shirley never came to us to develop a plan as to how we could help there. And she had so many run-ins with so many members of the caucus because she went directly into their congressional districts and sometimes was greeted by the opponents of the member of Congress from the Congressional Black Caucus. And and so
2: I was a good friend of Shirley's husband at a time when Shirley was having a problem with him and was in love with a person from Buffalo who she subsequently married. Her marriage to him, he did not turn out to be the state legislator that
3: the state legislators thought was in the, the interest and poor Shirley and the Congress had to take care of their home in Buffalo, her home in Brooklyn, a home in Washington, and dozens
2: of people that wanted her seat. And then, in addition to that, a race for President of the United States, which took more courage at that time than you can
3: imagine. She she uh, gave women, white and black,
2: an s- opportunity to feel more self-esteem than history had allowed them uh, to believe.
3: And it also gave a lot of women an opportunity to see the hypocrisy that existed in all white women movement who found it very easy to project women for political office, but not to support Shirley Chisholm.
0: So shifting gears just a little, when you were in Albany, uh, I know that you uh, pushed back there um, to have the numbers game legalized, uh, that you pushed back. On the idea of harsher penalties for uh, prostitution, I know in Congress. You know, you backed uh, abortion reform, and that was still an issue. That obviously, you, you were very active about uh, the war in Vietnam after your own experience in Korea. I, I'm bringing all these things up because if I look at national and New York politics now, just staying in New York for a minute, on the one hand, we have this proposal to bring a casino maybe into the city in Manhattan, which I find very striking. There's a big push among the new socialists in the state legislature. A lot of the same people, Democrats now, are trying to push Cuomo out to uh, to, to bring prostitution much closer to legalization. It seems like some of the things that you were thinking about and, and, and pushing for 50 years ago now are becoming much more mainstream democratic positions and with these younger socialists leading the way. And you've been saying – this optimism you're seeing now for where our politics are going, but I'm just wondering how you see yourself and, and your work in connection with uh, the moment we're at now.
3: It's hard for me to believe that history recording me as trying to get stronger penalties against prostitution. I was trying to get stronger penalties against John. Yes, I wanted to make certain, well, there's a big difference. I found it difficult to see how a woman could commit a crime and she's having sex with a man. And he's not committing a crime. And so it's the same thing that I felt about the draft. I don't think anyone should be fighting, but I believe if everyone
2: was treated the same about who had to fight, it would be the same. And as far as
3: legitimization of numbers was concerned my idea
2: was stolen with the lottery because I am telling you I have a lot of respect for policemen who put their lives on the
3: line uh, each and every day but the depth of corruption as you relate to numbers Which was the main thing that got Adam Clayton Powell in trouble because what he said on the floor was acceptable, but by, he was protected by the Constitution. But when he started talking about the corruption in the New York City Police Department over numbers and the fact that in the mornings in Harlem, if you went into a store in order to get some milk and eggs. You had to wait
2: until they took their numbers in off the street. And so, uh, those were the positions that I've had, uh, uh, today. I,
3: I don't see how they compared the, the, the,
2: Worst thing that we have today in our police department is not just the corruption, which unfortunately in all countries
3: there appear that greed will cause people to do a lot of unlawful
2: things for money, but it's that blue wall of silence. And uh I know we had it in our division in Korea. I know the Marines have it. And that means that no matter what your colleague does, you cannot tell
3: the truth. And this means committing perjury, uh Let me tell you one thing that is the biggest hypocrisy we have in the criminal justice system in the country, and that is plea bargaining. The fact that you find that 70 to 80 percent of people in jail are poor, black, and brown is not just the excerpt where The Constitution permits it in the 13th Amendment.
2: But the fact that when a young person is arrested, they are
3: supposed to be arraigned, which means that the people of the state have to tell this young person or anybody. What are the charges that they were arrested for? And if they don't have a lawyer, they're supposed to be assigned a lawyer. The lawyer would quickly tell them that the first thing they have to do is to get bail set. And if the bail was, if they couldn't get bail, they would have to stay in jail until there would be a trial and that it may be two or three years that they will be able to go
2: to trial but that the district attorney's office has charged him with so many
3: tra- so many charges that he never intended to take to the grand jury so that if he was guilty of anything he could have it being reduced to the lowest charge that he was charged with and would be able to go home. And the defendant says, would you run that by me again? He says, what I'm telling you is that if you pled guilty to a lesser defense that you could go home and, If you wait here and you can't get bail, you may be in jail for two or three years before there's a trial. And so they all have to be in court when this young person is pleading guilty, swearing to a judge that no promise was made to this young person, that the district attorney didn't promise it, that the lawyer didn't promise it, and the judge didn't. And that is one big lie. And the
2: whole world knows it.
1: So I wanted wanted to come back to Congress, though, because I'm just... um, I want you to talk to us a little bit more about your time on Ways and Means. And you spent a lot of time with various presidents, Democrat and Republican. And can you just reflect on on that experience of being in the majority at times and being in the minority at times and what you were able to do and build coalitions. Because you alluded to this fact that, you know, there are a lot of Black folks in the CBC, but the geographic distinctions meant something. So when you think about your time in Congress and as, you know, on the Ways and Means and other committees, what sort of sticks out
2: in your mind? that you want to share with our listeners. Well, you got plenty of staff. But if you know
3: that you need votes and you know that you are going to have any difficulty with one group of members or one state, the first thing to find out is what would it take to have them to at least share with you what it would take to get their votes. And I love poker and I love the Congress and I love making people happy and I love being able to get things done
2: where people can say thank you when they're helping you to get a bill through. Uh, I don't know whether people know that this recent bill that has been passed by 50 votes, 51 votes, because the vice president cast a vote to make it that way. But the solidarity of the Republicans... Is one of the most insane things I've ever
3: have witnessed or read about when the legislation, apparently, they're going to benefit from it and they could have benefited
2: more by calling up the Biden people saying, I can see my way clear if this school district, this hospital this road has a bend in it. It's the opportunity to bend the middle so someone would feel that they represented their district and not caving into the majority, which
3: the only thing the minority can do is to negotiate. And of course, when you're in the majority, It depends on how big that majority is. Uh, Sometimes being the majority, a member of the the majority party cannot be as effective as he or she may want to be because the leader of the party has so many votes that they don't have to even listen. I thought when I first went to Washington, uh, we had a speaker there. He was only there for one term. But there was a big argument as to whether or not they should build another uh, building for members of Congress. And this argument had gone on for 10 to 20 years. Me being New York slick, I went up to the Speaker and said, I'm new here, Mr. Speaker. How would you suggest that you would want my vote? He said, you vote however you want. I never felt more embarrassed in my whole damn life. (laughs) And so it, it doesn't work when they don't need your vote, but you have to know when it counts. And that's what makes the Congressional Black Caucus and hopefully soon the Hispanic Caucus and quite frankly, the non-existing Jewish Caucus where people have to think before they develop policy of how many votes are they going to get or lose as a result of moving forward. Unity or the appearance
2: of unity is so important uh, in life, in organization, in churches, and especially in politics. And how
1: was it working with Nancy Pelosi all those years, especially in a Barack Obama presidency, since she was so great at keeping that coalition together in
2: unity? Well, when you have a president and a speaker, you got one hell of a team if they're going to be together. And we had one,
3: two, or three people that, more annoyed the way they
2: were treated by the speaker. But quite frankly, nobody cares.
3: Nobody cares. As a matter of fact, there's so many people don't care that you learn not only to live with it, but you may learn to like with it because there's other things that go with being in the majority
2: that could supersede. What you were angry with. Nancy Pelosi knows how
3: to find out what the problem is in your district. And if she stops you in the hall and to tell you that we all are behind you with this empowerment this, this zone idea, Charlie, that you got, it's going to be good for your district and the urban community alike, it means that right then what she has said, that Charlie Gregg will never leave her politically at all. It's It's such an exciting experience. What I don't understand is why people cannot approach their entire lives in a way of being pleasant and trying to find out what is it really that the other person wants? You don't have to adopt it, but you can at least recognize that they have a different position and if you can't change that position yourself yourself, then you find out what is it that they like that other people can take away from them, and they'll understand you a lot more clearly. It's life and uh I've enjoyed every day of my political life, and and uh, I'm right back where I started, except I was raised on 32nd Street and Lenox Avenue, became a big shot. Now I live uptown on 35th <laughs> and Lenox Avenue.
0: Three blocks. Three blocks, 90 years, not bad. <laughs> How do you feel about uh, the gentrification in recent years and decades uh, in Ireland? I wish we had more money. You're not going
3: to beat the increase in appreciation of property and those that would buy it. I don't like it worth a damn. I would hope that we could find, even through the tax system, and there's a lot of wonderful ideas that can be worked out, is that when property appreciates so that the people fighting for decent housing can no longer live in unaffordable housing, that you find a way to provide for them. And so my bill was the the affordable credit housing. Under my bill, 90% of all Uh, low-income housing is built. And basically what it did was allow people to get tax tax breaks for investing in low-income housing. Another provision that you can have is that the owner would pay less taxes for the number of people that he absorbed in his middle-income housing. But there's Gentrification may be good and healthy, but, but what is also great is the community church, the community school, the community anchors of where one has come from, and a sense of pride in the fact that while we all be, can be one great country, it takes the roots of where we're from that people should know. And there's not a project that we've had in Harlem that the developers didn't understand that they had to take care of those community needs
0: first. And going back to political organization for just one second, I mean, if I have this history right, you and uh, Percy Sutton started a uh, joint clubs to start a JFK club that then became an MLK club. And you were talking about the importance of organization. And as we've been each week reporting and watching on this mayoral race with its 72 candidates and at this point no one really fully emerging i know you haven't paid that much attention to brooklyn over the years but it does seem like the uh the regular democratic political organizations aren't able to call a field or maintain a level of of control that they once would on the council level there's literally hundreds of candidates running and it does seem like like uh where there once were these organizations people came up through that, that essentially called and vetted for who was going to hold power for better and for worse, that all that has collapsed. And, like, the borough bosses can't even decide, make, make up a council speaker now. They can't really help decide on a mayor. And, you know, as a longtime player and observer, I would just sort of love your thoughts on where things are at now and while we're talking about it, also, of course, why you're uh, going with Eric Adams. Uh uh-huh. Eric Adams just acts as though
3: he's a mayor. He assumes a virtue if he doesn't have it. Schrein,
2: he sounds White like
3: someone that policeman's going to say, Schrein, oh, my White God, White what White have White they done to us now when they are taking one of us who knows Schrein, each and everything White that we've done and put him in charge of the whole city? No, Eric, and I don't really know him that well, but I've just admired the way he's carried
2: himself. And one of the major problems I've had is that
3: in the old system, you had to get around and tell people who you were. And I don't know whether it's the pandemic or not, but it's getting so bad that not only I don't
2: know the candidate but I don't know anyone who does know the candidate and when you find a people's
3: ability to get on the ballot that's so easy
2: uh, uh you have to just hope for the best, but, uh, it, it's a, it's a
3: entirely different world. And I'm not saying that the old
2: clubhouse uh, was not in badly need of reform, but, uh, you can reform. Our club
3: used to and still has meetings on every Thursday. They're open meetings. Uh, most political clubs that are strong advertise coming to the club. We bring in speakers to educate our community about different things. And the virus has really made all of those things very, very uh, difficult. So that I don't know what to advise uh,
2: a candidate to do. And I get a lot of requests, but uh, it's it's growing, it's changing, and there's no one that really had all of
3: the answers. I listen carefully, and and so many times I agree with the last person I heard, <laughs> because their position makes so much sense, but.
2: I want to be controversial enough to say this. What have you heard has been the reason why
3: churches and synagogues and mosques and Muslims and Mormons and Catholics and Christians have seen historically to get a free ride on the moral questions that we face today as a nation. What, I mean, I I just don't
2: understand how people who, who are not term limited, who are not fully taxed, that allege that they speak to a higher authority, that allow racism and things just to go, and no one asks them
3: uh, to speak out. What have you heard in your business that allowed churches the immunity uh, from making
0: moral judgment? Can you repeat that question at the very end there?
3: I think that with all the problems that you raised, about politicians, they're just and equal but in terms of race and and uh, and the spread with income and poverty why is it that the churches as a whole have not spoken out on that issue and I'm not asking you to give your opinion, I'm asking what have you ever heard is the reason why you dare not ask a church person about Vietnam or going to war, poverty, or the way human beings are treated. I'm just asking you, what have you heard? You got all those books behind you. I assume you read some of them. And I am saying that in all of my 90 years, I haven't heard anyone give any reason except God knows best and you got to believe. But I'm saying in the real questions we're facing today of life and death, uh, poverty and ability to, to live a decent life, getting an education. These are moral questions. And I don't find, except as it relates to the black churches and the civil rights movement, I have not heard anything but silence from the spiritual groups as a whole. And I was just asking. You seem so confused. I feel so sorry for you. But it's a question that someone really should have given some thought. That I get used to be able to get the attention on the Ways and Means Committee by reminding them that they were Mm. tax-free. And I would ask them, did they have any idea why? And that's because under a capitalistic system, greed is the theory that's supposed to make it work. But when you throw in God, that means that there should be compassion involved with people. Succeeding financially, and and since I'm closer to having somebody judge me spiritually than a lot of people, I want to be able to say when they tell me to go to hell, I can say you go to hell.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I I can't speak to the uh to the question the church is there entirely I, I did want to ask you just while you've been so generous with your time here because I think I think really that that, that is very different from, from congregation to congregation and the same way listen, don't do that to me the, the same I'm way corn houses I'm just
3: have, saying you tell me that it's Jesus Christ, you tell me that it's Moses you tell me it's Muhammad. I don't mm, care mm. how many different temples or churches you got they can come together when a rabbi dies or when a cardinal dies. So I'm not talking about the congregation. I'm talking about the policy.
0: That that's what I wanted to ask you.
3: And I'm asking you, not what you believe, but what have you heard in defense of why of their silence? Anything. Make
1: it up. Well I, I mean part of it is the economics of it all that you alluded to. I mean, these are also businesses. If it is,
3: then we're talking about the hustle.
1: Yeah, it's one of the oldest. I mean,
3: you're talking about because it would seem to me if I had no training and wanted to make some money and I could get people to give me money because I'm going to pray for them, hey, I don't have to go to medical school for that. And I know there are hustlers out there, and they know it too. And talk about the blue wall of of silence with the police. But uh, all I'm trying to do is to see whether anybody will do to the spiritual community what I hope Eric Adams will be doing to the law enforcement community.
2: Gotcha.
0: Do you think that the uh, movement nationally toward at least a study of reparations, which I know is something you called for while you were in Congress, is a sign of uh, the national political institutions, if not all of the spiritual ones, trying to come to terms with some of those larger questions and uh, moral failings of our culture?
2: I don't care what you call it. If you are preparing a new deal, a new structure for all Americans
3: and all who want to be Americans. And you find in that group someone that you can identify that over the years you have mistreated deliberately. You have denied that person the opportunity of an education. You denied them the property. You denied them the 40 acres. You denied them the mule. But this time you say, I can't afford that. It is true that a lot of my side felt better mistreating you. But this is a clean thing because now too many people in the world look like you. And so we've got to now have a plan that includes you, and so, whether it's slavery, anti-Semitism, whatever we've done to any group or person, you try to compensate for it, if not for moral reasons, but to make that person competent. if they're born with a disability. We have developed sciences to make them more productive. If we have caused the disability, not
2: only remove it, but find some compensation. I am the recipient of reparations for having my ass shot in Korea. I didn't negotiate it. But whoever did, with a little help for me, it worked out. And like slavery, I didn't volunteer to get shot. But they said in World War II that defending your
3: country meant something. And it took away from you something. We would
2: like to pay you back. That's reparations. What and I'm not talking about getting paid for the
3: darkness of your skin. They may have that problem with Great Britain about how much does a prince get based on his color. But but really here it's how much education were you denied? How can we compensate in allowing you to be able to become a better citizen than you are because of something that we did. And, uh, whether you put someone in jail for 30 years, or hold back the people for 300 years, what can you do to make up for it?
1: So Congressman, before we let you go, I wanted to know, you know, as an, I guess you'd be considered a nonagenarian, um, I think that's the proper term for it, someone who's in their 90s. In so many ways, when we think of Harlem, Charlie Rangel is synonymous with Harlem. Charlie Rangel is synonymous with New York. Charlie Rangel is synonymous with Congress. What do you want your legacy to be years from now when we think about when we're all going to Charlie Rangel elementary schools and, you know, sitting at Charlie Wrangle Boulevard and entering into the Charlie Wrangle buildings.
2: You can say, you you can say, I don't know who the hell
3: Charlie Wrangle was, but he damn sure loved all of them.
2: (laughs) I I really do. And, uh, uh, I joke with my wife and say that when we first got engaged, she tells
3: people, I promise that when we retire, she's interviewing me. And I was telling the story that uh, you were telling people that, uh, that when I
2: retired, that I was going to go to retire in Florida. And I said, at that time, I used to
3: drink but I never drank enough to say that I was going to leave home. (laughs) (laughs) No, my wife and I... too
2: late. Not too late.
3: (laughs) Not too late. No, the thing is that this woman has let me do everything politically
2: that she thought was right and I've never had to fight at home to fight for the things I believed in, which made it so much easier uh, doing what I had to do. Mm.
1: I think that's a beautiful place to to end. I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us, my forever congressman. Sharp as a tack, as always, as my grandpa would say. <laughs> Well, thank you for your patience with me and have a. Let's hope
3: that uh, we all get well, stay well, and believe me,
2: this could be really the real reconstruction. This could be paying back for all the injustices that we knew we've committed but all we said, we don't have the money to do it. This is
3: really a question of building a national security that's stronger for all all of our environment. And uh, when I look and see the progress that we made and the people
2: that are going to be sitting around the table, I just hope this is on the agenda. I enjoyed talking
3: with you. Got to take care of my bride. Take care.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Congressman. A pleasure. Thank you. You stay safe and be well. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists and artists. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guests this week, Congressman Charles Rangel of Harlem, USA, Emma Rawler of BrickHouse, and Tom Skoka of Hmm Weekly. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be well, wear a mask, and we'll see you next week.